Hello, hello. Welcome to the Bali Effect. This is Preeti Tana. And this is Dee Dee Perry. Oh boy, Preeti. This oh is a boy, big Dee. one. I know, we've been, we've been talking about this for weeks and uh, I cannot wait. Happy Friday indeed. Man, I don't have nothing to say this time. I'm don't... starstruck. Don't ask me anything. <laughs> Well, should we do a little a little um, build up to our guest? Whatever you want, you got to take you got to run point with this one because I'm yeah I'm tongue tied already. <laughs> you know, I know I'm not gonna I'm, I don't think I'm gonna take too much time because I can't wait to to talk to our guest. But I'll, I'll say that um, th- as a South Asian growing up in America, this theme has come up on many other podcasts, especially recently. Um, it wasn't until I came in contact with our guest and, and what she was doing um, at the time that I felt that I belonged somewhere, you know, and it was the first time that I had actually really felt as though I could be myself, um, at least, you know, occasionally um, uh, on Thursdays. So I am stoked to talk to our guest today. So I'm just going to go right into it. Today we have DJ Rika. Welcome. Woo, woo, woo. Do you count? <laughs> I need one of those sounds to like hype it up. <laughs> and welcome, welcome. And just, uh, you know, we think everyone knows you, but I'll do a, a brief little intro. But uh, DJ Rika pioneered the merging of Bangar and Bollywood sounds with contemporary electronic dance music. DJ Rika also founded Basement Bhangra, one of New York City's longest-running club nights, almost 20 years, I guess 20 years, as well as Bollywood Disco and co-founder of Mutiny Club Nights. DJ Rika was also named Ambassador of Bhangra by the New York Times, sound designer for Tony Award-winning Broadway show Bridge and Tunnel, received a Drama Desk Award nomination for her work on the play Raftha Raftha, also the associate producer for the NPR radio documentary, A Feet in Two Worlds. Remixes for artists that range from Meredith Monk to Priyanka Chopra. Chopra. Gotta Be- that one. What's that? <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta dial that one back. I need to edit that bio. <laughs> okay. Well, you know what? There's so many other things. So many other things. Curated events for Celebrate Brooklyn, Central Park Summer Stage. Performed at the Obama White House and internationally. Um, recently graduated with a Master's of Science in Comparative Media Studies from MIT. And of course, you know, we'll get into this later, but some of my favorite stuff is going on now. The live on Sundays, your podcast, Beyond Bunga. So welcome, DJ Rekha, to the Bali Effect. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, I think just to let us, you know, our listeners, some listeners, uh, I don't know who they are, maybe three out of the seven might not know what Basement Bhangra is. And while we have so much to cover with you, I would just want to briefly give you the opportunity to let them know. What is Basement Bhangra? What was Basement Bhangra? What was Basement Bhangra, for sure. Uh, Yeah, Basement Bhangra was a club night that I started in 1997. And um, it was a time when... uh, there was a moment in New York City where there was a critical mass of younger South Asians that were looking to party. Um, and the only formal party structures were Indo-Caribbean clubs that were already well-established or college parties. And so club nights started to happen where people would rent clubs on off nights, maybe a long weekend, a Sunday, um, places that were on the verge of going out of business. They start getting in you know, they didn't have their regular crowd. And um, I got asked by this venue, Sounds of Brazil, which is really just called SOBs now because its focus is shifted from Brazilian music, to come up with a night. And they had had some limited experience with uh, a few Bhangra acts. They, um, they often uh, uh, piggybacked off of uh, visiting visiting acts that came into the city, so they were they booked a lot of world music acts, and so they had once booked this band Excellency, uh, X the letter X L N C, and they they did a summer stage, and then they had them on a Tuesday, and they remembered, wow, that was unexpectedly busy, and then 
same thing. Another band was in town from Toronto for a cultural event. And they try to get the organizers try to get them, you know, an extra gig. And um, SOBs um, didn't take them when we were, when they were performing, which is November. They said, come back in the middle of winter when we have nothing going on and, you know, and we'll try a night with you. And so we were called in at that time. I was working with my partner, DJ Joy, to like promote the night and see what's up. And so it was a cold Tuesday in February and it was brick and a good number of people came out. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, um, then, you know, we came, I came up with the concept for a regular night and then Basin Bunger was born. So it was, uh, established as the first Thursday of the month and it was focused on Bunger music and it mm -hmm. ran for 20 years. That's, uh, that's incredible. But what were you doing at the time when they contacted you? I mean, you said you were with a what partner. What was I doing? <laughs> I was like running around town. I had like at least three jobs. I was trying to get out of college. I was living with my parents. I think I was living with my parents. I was like maybe living with my parents, maybe like my first sublet apartment. Um, I was just trying to figure it out, you know, um, I was DJing a little bit. I was doing a lot of, I was still doing like private events. Joy and I would get booked by these promoters, these other South Asian promoters, and they would tell us, you know, don't play too much Bhangra, Punjabi music. We don't want like cab drivers and don't play too much hip hop because we don't want thugs or we don't want hood, hoodie. What do they call them? They call them hoodies. Yeah, hoods or something. So, so <laughs> basically it was like, no black people, no poor people. And I was like, you know what? Can I? That's curse? no fun. <laughs> Can I curse? Because I was like, F you. I want, I, that's the best music. And, you know, 1997, yeah. you have to understand that hip hop is not ubiquitous. Hip hop is still like confined to certain radio stations. It's not mainstreamed yet. Eminem has not happened yet, you know? So hip hop was seen as sort of a, a niche category. It wasn't, you know, broad scale popular music. So, um, people wanted things in doses, but, and, and, you know, there's always, clubs are always music policing. They still are. Um, there's always a genre that they don't want you to play right now. It's probably trap, you know, it's like, that's too, too much, too much, too much fire. Can't do it. You know? Um, so no there's always that they were... style of music. That's too much, but SOVs, they don't care. <laughs> They're like, bring it. And do you remember the first basement bungra? Yeah, I do. We had Bali. It was just like a twist of, of weird things aligning. It was actually we had Bali Sagu. The first time we called the name. Oh night. wow, I remember that name. It was you know um, Sony had okay. just signed him. Bali Sagu is a very influential music producer from UK, and um, I still play his stuff on the Great. radio. Um, He's from Birmingham, and he started out um, remixing remixing songs, and then he started producing his own work, and it was pretty groundbreaking. And he had gotten a major label major label deal with Sony, and he put out this album. Well, actually, he put out Bollywood Flashback, but he had this original album called uh, East is East. East. Oh my God, I'm like blanking on the name. Rising from the East. Anyway, that album is sort of like, it's, it's Buddha Bar before Buddha Bar. It's a beautiful, it's actually a very beautiful record. And the label was just looking to get him any kind of audience or promotion. And there was not a lot of formal infrastructure for those kinds of things. So they said, yeah, Bally will perform at your night. We're like, okay. <laughs> I'm in. That's great. And you're up, so you're up there, you know, by Sagu first night. When you're looking out in the crowd, which um, I did not include me. You know, when I was writing out the outline, I'm like, I was definitely there the first time. I was not. It took me another three years before I got uh -huh. to New York City and tapped into Basin Bhangra. Uh, but what were you thinking at that moment? And you're looking out and you're seeing this packed room and people are obviously having the best time. I mean, I don't know. I, I can't say. First of all, when we started, we were up on a balcony and we couldn't even see the dance floor. It was above the bar. We had to climb up this ladder. So you couldn't really see the dance floor. Eventually we came down, we started doing special nights on the floor. Then we came on stage. It was, 
sort of a metaphor for DJ culture at large that transpired over the 20 years. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think like, you know, Bally Segu, I always look up to him and mm-hmm. um, I love his music. And um, I guess it was a good night. I don't think I ever like appreciated the success in the moment ever. And then, you know, it didn't take off right away. That night was busy. And then we started a regular night and it didn't, it didn't pop off right away. It took like a year. There were some like, you know, I mean, the thing about (laughs) capitalism is if you don't hit your numbers every month, if you hit a peak and you don't hit the peak every single time, there's a sense of like, damn, you know, I didn't make it. Mariah Carey got dropped from her record label after she sold 27 million records. Like, you know, there's your personal test that you give yourself about what constitutes like success. I mean, that night I was probably like running around, um, trying to manage so many different things. Um, I don't know. I was in school. I probably had homework I had to do. I can't, I don't remember all of it. It's true uh, because that. No, I bought clothes and I returned them because I couldn't afford them. That I remember. We all did that. You too. <laughs> I might have done that for my first basement bunger night, actually. You know. Yeah. I did that before the quarantine happened. Days <laughs> <laughs> still doing that. Thirty day <laughs> trial. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I don't know. I I just remember being being excited to really play to really like embrace the idea of playing bunger music like in a uh, like full-on dj set not as like 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 a anecdote not like sort of but just like really going hard you know and did you you know I, this is what i remember right and i could be wrong on this but i remember the crowd being majority you know, the majority being south asian i went with my indian friends mm-hmm. um and i don't know if i was in such a you know state of euphoria being like this is great music and i'm having the best time and i'm here with my indian posse but did you feel as though the crowd um was pretty diverse or did you feel like it was where all the indian people in new york city went to kind of hang out and congregate no the the crowd was pretty diverse i mean the funny thing is is people think like oh when it got popular did more white people show up actually when it got more popular more desi people showed up yeah, isn't that... It started out as like a downtown New York kind of thing. It was, you know, friends of friends. A lot of my friends were activists, queer, beginning their professor journeys. Um, and um, and then people that would just go out clubbing. And, you know, we got we got noticed pretty quickly in like club magazines and things like that. And so it was always a very mixed audience. And it wasn't just Indians, it was South Asians in a variety. And um, and then it just kept growing. And then people started coming from wider and wider. Like, you know, there was people from Yale Bungra would drive. And then there was this Cornell Bungra would drive. I mean, these are like a few hours away or people like planned their business trips around it. And, you know, so I think it always felt diverse to me. It was definitely a brown space. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we had, we were in proximity to NYU, so we did have those kids come through. Um, and it's just New York's a transient city. People come to town for, for grad school for something and then they leave or that they come in for business. And it's, you know, there's sort of this, like, I would say global intelligentsia. It's a certain mm-hmm. class of, a certain privileged class that like you who, you know, go to school one place, do a fellowship one place. That's one segment, you know, uh, uh, of the audience. And then they're just people that came from like around New York. I think that it was accessible to different kinds of people. You could be suited. I mean, I was very adamant about things like there's no dress code. There's no gender policy, you you know, according, you know, sometimes a club would be doing shit behind my back that I wasn't endorsing, but you know, Clubs will be clubs, but, um, but, you know, I just wanted to make it as accessible as possible. Cause you, I mean, you want your night to suck, like make it like hard to get it, make, you know, put in a dress code and a, and a, and a minimum. Make it expensive. You're gonna yeah. Get, you're going to get, you're going to get assholes in the club. Right. 
I don't right. want those people. I want people who can dance. I want to dance right now. You know, <laughs> I, I, uh, D has a bunch of questions. D, uh, I'll, I'll pass it along in a second. But um, for me, uh, I, it was a long time, and I would say it was well after Bass and Bunger started, maybe five years, maybe even 2005 or six for me, that I actually mm -hmm. started to feel comfortable mm -hmm. in my own skin, kind of, in America. And so curious if you also went through this uh, journey of saying, you know, hey, I don't, like, I know I'm Indian, I'm Indian, I love the culture, I love the music. It's not mainstream, right? We had pockets of things. We had Madonna do some music that sort of drove to culturally relevant themes in a way, I guess, but it wasn't as, um, accepted at least to me mm -hmm. then as it is now. I, I think I have a somewhat of a different experience. Mm -hmm. I think there, there, we have different, we all have different journeys. I think people who, I think some of it is, is, um, compounded by our class position. Yeah. Like I always grew up around brown, brown and black communities. So I never had this, like, I'm not Indian. I loved being Indian. I was a cultural informant. I would tell the teacher more. I would right. be like, what do you want to know about my culture? I'm here. I'm proud of it. You know, I, I always loved who I was. Um, and I, you know, I was born in England and I think part of it might've been because when I was really young and this, this was common in the diaspora. I was, my parents lived in England for six years. During that time I was born. When I was very young, I was sent to India to live with my extended family. Um, and that was, that was a common practice of separation for childcare, people being separated sometimes, you know, one family member, the mother, the father in a nuclear family stays back. Sometimes kids are sent back for extended periods of time. And maybe that is why I felt so bonded uh, culturally. I don't remember that time because I was, it was before I started having active memory. Then we moved to New York. We lived in Flushing, mm -hmm. very South Asian, uh, but it was very multi-ethnic. I, I never really lived in a white space. I still don't. I mean, the whitest I got is when I lived in Williamsburg, but I was in an Italian neighborhood and that didn't feel white. That felt very Italian. It was very different. Um, I think that's what we're going to name our... God bless, you know, the Salernos of Williamsburg. Uh, and then Williamsburg is a whole other trip. Williamsburg is actually a bunch of different neighborhoods stitched together before the hipsters ruined it. There's a section of Williamsburg that's very, very Italian, um, which is where I lived. Um, anyway, so my whole point is, like, I personally did not feel that. I do know for some people that was a thing. And I know for some people, Basement Bhangra served a purpose in allowing people to feel free it was in the context of a it wasn't it was like a real spot it was like a spot you would go the sound mm -hmm. was good it was the production was professional like you know i did everything in a way that you know i, I can't I, I i have to make it sound and look good and i mean the the, the sort of sub the subtweet or the joke about basement is like it's where you bring your coworkers. you know <laughs> um to, to me it was a new york dance party you know, and that was important to me. And I, I've said this often that I don't think bass and bunger could happen anywhere but New York, even though the music is about music that is created within the diaspora from the imagined homeland. I think it's very much about a New York party, which is why these styles of music can inter, inter, intersect or interact with each other. And, you know, there's also a splash of dance hall in there for, for good measure. But I mean, we had a lot of the music I played, especially early on, was from the UK. So it was mm. UK Bhangra. And I'd have so many people from the UK that would come over, especially during our holiday time, because Brits love nothing more than going to America for Christmas. I don't know why. They just like, <laughs> and this is what I love. You're Desi, you come to New York, and you just look for Desi things. Like, you're in New York. Go to a hip-hop show. Why are you just looking for <laughs> They do. They, they go for the, the Desi they restaurants. So yeah. that, and so many people would tell me, like, we don't have this in England. I'm like, you don't have this in England? Like, this music is from England because they're culturally, they're set up differently. Like, they're club, they were, and that's the politics of England. It's, like, even more isolationist ethnically. Like, we have certain... Uh, I think, you know, I, I also think it's because of the, 
the racial class politics of America. I mean, South Asians have a lot of privilege, you know, Mm. even in cultural spaces. Like, I think, unfortunately, at the cost of other 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 um, marginalized groups. But anyway, that's just going off there. But um, we'll get back to that later. What's the Um, question? (laughs) We we just kind of go with the flow. You yeah. know, and it's interesting that when I'm talking to you, because one of the things we wanted to ask you was, you know, when did you realize that Basement Bunger had become more than a party series, but a cultural movement? And it sounds like to me, you kind of are saying, I didn't, I, it was a party. And to me, it was about good music and hanging out. And it, I don't know that I necessarily felt as though it was a cultural movement, but correct me if I'm wrong there. I mean... I don't know. I mean, I definitely remember writing it on a flyer once, the party that started the movement. That was our 10-year anniversary. So I definitely did try to capitalize on that idea. <laughs> it, it just kind of happened organically, yeah. you know? And and a lot of things happened in New York. There, there were other things that were happening. I mean, there's no fixed point of identity. South Asians have been in America since... The earliest sighting is 1700 something. I mean, you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of micro amnesia. Like it's hard for people to understand cultural moments that are are, are recent because there's not scholarship to reflect it, right. and it feels like you're the first person to do something. You know, um, and you know the Beatles. The Beatles were all over Ravi Shankar. You know, <laughs> um, and yes, there was definitely a significant cultural moment you know, at this time, which we would say like late nineties, early two thousands, and then Bombay dreams happened. And then that was a watershed moment. And we keep thinking like, Oh, we've arrived. And then we keep arriving because we never really arrive, you know, because we're still living under, you know, white supremacist structures and we're only, and, and the, and the cost of arriving is really loaded because it means to say that, you know, we're of, yeah, I think it's complicated. I mean, I don't know. I mean, for me personally, like there are different milestones in the party. There's a time when, you know, um, when I quit my day job for the last time, you know, when I like, I don't know, like had certain kind of moments of like, as a, as a person growing into myself or like finding certain kinds of like, when my light, when I could pay my light, my electric bills and not really worry, you know, but there was always, it was always risk. And, um, it it was a lot of hustle. It was a lot of hustle all the time, you know? Um, and there was times when I was doing multiple nights and I, I think watershed moments for me are like, you know, (laughs) honestly, when I got written up in the India broad, I was like, Oh shit, I made it. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like, yeah. Listen, you you did. The only time India Broad got mentioned in my family was when they went through the matrimonials and I opened the mailbox one day and found an envelope full of, you know, this tells you how old I am, pictures, actual pictures from responses of my ad in India Broad. So I think it is a watershed moment. I was just trying to get at the spelling bee kids because like, (laughs) fuck them, you know. You're like, you know what, I'm having more fun over here. Yeah, I mean, so I don't know, like, you know, you have to be kind of stay humble kind of vibe, you know, it's like, for me, it was like, great to meet different people and connect and like made a lot of friends through the party, met other, you know, met other artists. And to me, that's what it was about, really. I'm I'm curious, I I don't know many DJs, but the few that I've gotten to to interact with, I find that they are some of the most low-key, brilliant, and at the same time unassuming folks that you're ever going to have the privilege of speaking with. Because a lot of of people who are attracted to this type of work know so much about so many different types of cultures. And I'm curious, what we read that you studied urban studies in school. and you clearly are an intellectual powerhouse. What was it that made you want to say, you know what, doing this full-time, going the DJ route is what I want to do, full on in? Mm-hmm. 
Well, I, I don't think I knew I wanted it. I think it, it want, I, I always say it chose me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I had a definitely like a immigrant hustle mentality. I always saw it as somewhat of a business, but I wasn't really good at business. So I didn't really like, I did it, but I wanted it. I like, I want to do something, but I also want no one to pay for it. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Like I'm always balanced. I'm like, I'm like, you know, let's give all our money away. Like it's, it's kind of like both. And, you know, I've always been involved in community organizations and different groups. So I think the, the making this or understanding that this was a career, um, took me a while to understand and accept because for all the reasons why, you know, art is not valued and, I mean, it's not stable We're, as artists we're, it's not, it's not a sure thing, you know? Like, look at this pandemic. All my friends got their cash apps up, you know? Um, it's, it's, it's hard. Um, and at the end of the day, whatever we did at Basement, the club made most of the money no matter what, you know? Mm-hmm. That's the real mm-hmm. situation. So, I mean, I think that um, I, I was, I'm a failed musician in some ways. <laughs> like, music, like, you know, I have really bad ADHD, so, like, I tried as a kid to learn how to play keep guitar and two tabla lessons. And, but I was always immersed in music and DJing just made sense to me. And I, you know, learned with my cousins and with my friend joy and it just started to really click. And it's like a very focused activity. You have people you're interacting with in the moment, you know? Um, I, I just really like DJing live. I'm not even much of a studio head, you know, I've definitely done, uh, I've done music production. Um, but I just really enjoy the moment uh, of spinning for people and just sharing what I like about music and creating spaces and you know, environments. Um, and all the parties I've created, they always have a certain angle or theme or point of view. And I'm very picky about the space they're in. And, you know, um, I like to make them distinct and, you know, that, that's that's sort of my creative process and I like to work with other people on it visual artists and I, I think everything about the party is the is the party the flyer how you walk through the door everything you know well from the end user side of the experience I gotta say uh so I got introduced to basement after taking the Salabangra classes in like <laughs> 2007 2008ish around that time mm-hmm. and my instructor she would advertise for the class she's like now you guys you better work on this and get good because you need to get yourself down <laughs> yeah. to basement bangra and really put this stuff to the test and so we were like practicing <laughs> we're like oh my gosh we're going to embarrass ourselves in public and I remember that first time going, I didn't know what to expect, but I definitely, I hate a damn line. I hate, I, the worst yeah. thing for me is waiting yeah. on the, the outside in the cold for an hour to get into a club that's half empty. I'm like, what the, I hate it, you know, crazy expensive cover. I hate all the funky rules. Oh, yeah. ladies, what's this? And, that, and, and I, I hate them too. Yes, and I had I none them. of that. And it's like, and when we got in there, Everybody was rocking. And to me, um, I, I, my family is African-American, mm-hmm. but we, I grew up in a town um, and have a whole extended family from Trinidad. Mm-hmm. To me, it felt like a dance hall. And mm-hmm. so I, it was my first time. I was like, yeah, <laughs> oh, this is dope. And seeing the, the diversity in the room blew me away. I had never experienced anything like it. And this black girl from Hartford, Connecticut felt at home. And I thank you for that. I really, My really pleasure. do. That's not something that I had experienced. And I loved a New York club. You know, I, I went to school here too, but it was something brand new. And I wonder, when was the moment that you realized that you had this ability to, to make such an incredible community just doing what you were doing? Not just bringing people to a party, but building a community. I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's not like it was, I woke up. I mean, I came from, I'm of community, you know, like mm-hmm. I was community activist before I started basement. So that kind of thinking and those, that, that, those people were, they were in the club with me, you know, like I was part of South Asian women's creative collective, which started the same year. And I had worked 
I was an intern at a South Asian DV organization. And a lot of my friends, we were all at the same age starting our art career. So some of my best friends are artists and writers. And that's really fortunate and lucky to have that community and that community vibe. I mean, there's two things that I think I can credit for community mindedness. One is I grew up in Westbury, Long Island, which is a suburb, but it's a black suburb more or less. And I grew up around Caribbean, second-gen Caribbean folks and African-American people predominantly. And our teachers were one generation away from the civil rights movement. So I feel like I was politicized there. When I was in high school, the Divest Now movement in South Africa was large. The first protest, I, it, just, it was just an uh, anniversary of the Soweto uprising, which was... Uh, the sort of the thing that was one of the more significant things that happened in South Africa that, I mean, it took a lot of years, but eventually mm-hmm. apartheid ended. But, yeah. you know, in my high school, everybody wore a divest now, but the teachers and everything. And I think that's one aspect of my politicization. I also listened to WBI radio. Like I was seeking these things out. My dad had a uh, a, a candy store in Midtown, and I, I worked there in the summers, and I read The Village Voice, and oh, I nice. got, I was privy to a, an intellectual world of New York City, independent movies and things that I think also informed me, and then I grew up going to the Gudwara, you know, my parents, and in the Gudwara, the sick, you know, house of worship, you learn something very basic, which is seva, which translates to service. Like when you go there, they read from the Guru Granth Sahib, which is a Sikh holy book, and they they do some bhajan, some kirtan, which is some singing, and then they serve a meal. They serve something sweet, and then they serve a meal. And everybody makes that meal. Everyone there makes the meal. And it's a very selfless act. And, you know, Sikhs across the world are at every place where people need food, including the, they've been feeding protesters and people during COVID. And that I think really got into me early. And I think there's something that kind of connection and I don't know, the desire to build a space to make it as open and welcoming as sort of innate in me. And I think that's why, despite the way clubs are, I was like, nah, let's make it early, cheap early. If you don't got money and you, you have to get there early, but you know, you know, there's that there's, was me. <laughs> there's a window for you to you can get in early and you can get drunk because there's a free frozen slushy mojito, which is terrible. But yeah, but you know what though? Good. That was the night. That you is exactly what we want. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I mean, for the club, it's like ice with some cheap alcohol, but it works. <laughs> it works. And um, and you know, that's what makes the club good is like people who want to be there, who want to dance. Like, I don't want anyone in the club that doesn't want to be in the club. If you don't want to be there, leave. Like when we did our other night, Mutiny, which was inspired by, it was very drum and bass. It was inspired by the, the, the sound that was coming out of UK from like second, third generation South Asians that were experimenting with electronica and drum and bass. And it was a, definitely a different vibe. So we'd get some of our, you know, it's the same email list, sending out the email for all the same things. We'd get some of the basement bunger kids and they'd be like, what the hell is this? I'll be like, yo, here's your money. Get out. I don't, want to, don't, don't, don't kill my vibe. And some kids, some of them would be like, yo, this is cool. What's up? This is different. Um, so I guess, I guess like that, that is just kind of, I mean, club nights and DJs, we build community and I'm not, and I always felt like the thing about the whole New York thing is like, you know, Body and Soul was a club night in New York that builds community. There's so many different nights, shelter. I mean, a lot of these queer spaces have long histories of building community. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I think that's that's part of what dance spaces can do. And that's what they do, especially for people, marginalized people who don't feel a place to express themselves, you know? And I think that's what Basement Bonger ended up becoming. Uh, 20 years. I hope. <laughs> 20 years, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, 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 you know, um, look, 20 years of Basement Bhangra, you're so much more than this musical powerhouse, right? The ability to be a community organizer, tying back to Seva, right? Um, using your platform to raise awareness, to fight things like racism, sexism, misogyny, discrimination. 
did you have a moment in time where you said, was it after the 20 years where you thought, listen, this is my, my, I've built a platform, I've built an audience and now I, I really need to give back to the community and I can harness collective change and encourage individuals to think differently. Did that happen organically? I mean, I think that's something I've always done. I yeah. don't feel like it's, it, it's like there's a moment where I switched it on. I mean, I, I serve on the board of an organization called Chaya CDC, and I've been yeah. involved with them informally for years. And I got on the board two years ago and like, you know, now I'm, I'm more invested in them. But throughout the years of basement and throughout my DJ career, I've always been engaged in, in those worlds, you know, um, whether it's like doing fundraisers or just amplifying causes. I mean, that's, that's always been a part of what we do, of what I do. Do you want to talk a little bit about Chaya CDC? Uh, sure. Chaya CDC is a, 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 a community economic development corp, uh, corp that's invested in providing stability, uh, economic stability for um, South Asians in New York. So we do things like provide foreclosure prevention training, economic, uh, financial uh, uh Planning? Not planning. That sounds very like, that sounds very like uh, retirement fund. No, it's like financial counseling. That's the word. Financial counseling, <laughs> uh, citizenship training. We're also, it started out as like uh, working around housing issues, but housing issues are part of like, you know, structural inequity. So we work on many fronts and especially during uh, this time of the pandemic, you know, we have a COVID relief fund, which we're raising money for. Um, but working on many fronts, um, started doing food distribution, which is not usually our line of work, but the need mm -hmm. is so great. Creating forums for, you know, people to just get more involved actively. We're suing uh, a developer project in Flushing because they're doing, trying to like build this whole waterfront and not do a needs assessment of the community that lives there, which is garbage, you know? I mean, we're basically always fighting real estate developers that are, you know, Queens is on the chopping block. We were heavily involved in the anti-Amazon campaign. Um, and, you know, I live in Jackson Heights and there's already one fancy luxury building that's gone up and we're fighting for our lives here, especially um, the, the store owners. So, um, I mean, that's, that's some of what I do um, now. I mean, I've been involved in many ways before. I bring it up because it's, it's an organization that you've talked about um, mm -hmm you know, on, on social media and also, you know, raising funds when you do mm -hmm. your Sunday, yep. Sunday Instagram lives. And, uh, you know, you were talking before a little bit about the entirety of the party and having these moments, it, you know, includes the flyers and when you walk in the door and the feeling you have when you get to the party, but you're spinning now on Sundays on live on Twitch mm -hmm. and Instagram. And, to me, you you are somehow evoking the same feeling <laughs> I used to get at Beesum Bangra. And I'm curious from your perspective, without all of those things, without the flyers, without um, a feeling of people being in person, mm -hmm. how are you evoking that same? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... I don't it's a well oiled know. machine at this point. I'm just like <laughs> drinking my coffee and the vibe. <laughs> Um, your I mean, it, liquor cabinet is envious, by the way. I'm it, like, I just want to drink. <laughs> but also, I have to tell you. So, you know, my sister uh, is is a big fan, and every Sunday there's an exchange of videos and pictures of me dancing, her dancing, her kids dancing. They're ten and twelve. <laughs> and this past Sunday, we were visiting our parents for the second time. Uh -huh. We're all sitting outside separated and the alarm goes off at one o'clock. So my dad's alarm goes off for his medication and my sister's <laughs> alarm goes off and she's like, is DJ Rick a time? And we're like, <laughs> we're like we? you know, and so I'm like, turn it on, turn it on, you know, but I just, I want to tell you that this is Thank a you. thing that we, we, during this pandemic, it has been, you know, one of the things that really, I'm like, Sundays at one is coming. You have, you have a moment. I mean, to... I, I will say a party creator trick is an appointment, you know, <laughs> it's like lock, lock down, like own your day, yeah. you know, own it. Like a lot of, a lot of DJs. And this is why I did Thursdays. Like, I don't like to compete with people. I'm not competitive. I just, I'm like, I want to just do my thing. Like you do your thing. 
I hope a million people come to your thing. Just let me do my thing. Well, I didn't, you know, like in the early days of South Asian partying, there was like a lot of like fighting over venues yeah. and competing nights. And, and I'm just like, yo, let me have my thing. You know, I hope everybody goes out every day. And I'm like, Thursday means that if you have a day job, you got to mean it, you know? That's, like, totally. as, as a New Yorker, I loved partying. I used to go out during the week. One is because I was a DJ and I didn't have like a day job. But even when I had day jobs, you know, Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, those were the best nights to go out in New York to me. So Well, Didi and I were supposed to do Instagram lives for the podcast Sundays at 1. And I was like, we got to change it. My sorry. sister's like, my sister's like, too bad. I'm going to DJ Rayka. I was like, okay, we'll change it to the evening. It's I mean, I, I think part bit. part of the the feeling is people's own personal nostalgia that has nothing to do with like what, you know. I think there's like the party ended three years ago. A lot of my the people that are watching are people that are you know are not going to go out to a club even if I started it again. You know. It's like people have kids, people are different. It's also like people have moved away from New York. And I think the ability to have those people that know me for that, I think that that alone. And I think it's weird, like with the, with the live is like people people comment and chat in and, and it's it's a level of interactivity. And I'm trying to find the balance of engaging and then not talking too much and like figuring it out and also fighting, not getting shut down because, yeah. oh, you know, is that a is that a band? Like, why are they shutting that down? Is that it's just a copyright you know? thing? Yeah. Oh, because technically speaking, you have to license right. the music, but it's garbage because the platform should deal with it. The labels are like Instagram. You can't play our music without paying for it. Instagram says, "User, do not play music." We're you know, you're violating our terms of service. But TikTok is like our whole platform is music. So we're going to make a deal with the label and right. TikTok, you know, so it helps songs get, there's like TikTok people that, I mean, uh, that song, um, Billy Ray Cyrus, what's that song that was so big last year? Uh, talking to somebody who doesn't remember anything. Dee Dee remembers everything. You know, Not about big country, country music. Song, that big country song. Oh, Crossover country hit. I'm like, da, da, da. The one with um the guy, um yeah, Old Billy Town Rose. Boy, Old Town Road, Old Town Road. Oh, for the win! <laughs> you that got came it. out of TikTok, you know. Um, so every platform, you know, has its own ups and my uh, pluses and minuses. So you know, we were telling people to go to Twitch. One is we can production-wise, you can do more things in Twitch. You can have visuals and scroll and different things. Twitch and Facebook, Instagram is very limited technically, but then Twitch started cracking down. So it's, it's definitely frustrating um, that there's at any point we could, I could get shut down if I'm not careful. Well, you do, they're going to have to take down a whole lot of other people who are. Well, they have been. I mean, everyone's complaining. Amir Questlove's complaining. Jazzy Jeff's complaining. A lot of DJs are complaining. See, you're good friends with him, aren't you? With the mirror? I, I would not I would with, not say that. With but the when I I would say the the really smart people who are DJs, that's who I had in my mind, but she dropped it, not me. Anyway, <laughs> I continue uh, on. Yeah, yeah. He's um, he's popped in a few times. I've known him for many for, for a long time. Very we've, sweet we've, person. Yeah. We've uh I've been on the bill we've been on the bill together a few times through the years and we have a lot of people in common. That's what's up. Now you mentioned earlier, you know, it's a constant hustle doing yeah. doing this work. Over the twenty years, have you um, seen yourself evolve as a business person? Because um, most people would not think like, oh, you know, DJ and entrepreneurship. But my God, absolutely! Like you, you got to do everything. Um, did your style change? Did your approach to the work change? I mean, I think I had a grand vision of like building some like kind of empire type thing and I felt like I don't think I was able to do it <laughs> I mean I launched I mean I put out a record I started a label label didn't really go anywhere I had one single um I don't know if the approach to the work changed that much and just um you know, it's just been different, different iterations. There was a time when I had like, you know, 
two people working for me, a manager, a booking agent, a publicist, this and that. And now I'm like back down to like a more skeleton crew. And, um, I don't, it's hard to say, you know, it's really hard to say. I, I don't know for sure. Um, uh, I think the work is always changing, you know, mm-hmm. the work is always mm-hmm. changing. You're always trying to like incorporate, you know, I, I incorporate different sounds. You're always trying to keep up on the music. Um, um, I mean, DJing on Instagram live and Twitch is change Every time you change the context, you change, you change the performance, you know? And every gig is different. Like when I'm playing, you know, Brooklyn Museum, it's a different vibe. When I'm playing like on my Sunday sessions, it's kind of freeing in some ways because I can do different different takes on things. When I do my radio show, my podcast, that is very different. That's totally I'm in my head. I'm not, there's no dance floor, you know? So I can really go like specific and and... I'm still programming like, with the DJ's mind, but I'm not mixing it. I'm I'm programming the set versus, you know, spinning it. Um, and then I do a little section on the show where I just do like open format and I really get to highlight weird stuff. So uh, yeah, I, I guess it changes each time. You know, I, I don't plan my, I mean, I have been planning my Sunday sets a lot more because it's an hour and I don't want to get cut off and I need to have everything at my fingertips because I have to mix a lot faster because that's the only, the only advice they're giving you is like, you know, don't play a song too long. It'll get flagged. So that's the only thing I've been working on. Um, but, um, you know, I don't know that that's always in flux, you know, one question I've always wanted to, to know. And, and I say this as humbly as possible. Why is it that some DJs get so mad when you ask for a request? Because <laughs> I'm like, the Cupid Shuffle is always the hit. <laughs> always the hit. What's the problem? What's that about? Please. <laughs> I will tell you exactly what it's about. Imagine you're doing your job. While you're doing your job, someone is looking over your job <laughs> and telling you how to do your job. Oh, Imagine you're cooking and you're in you're in the kitchen and you know what's up. And then someone's like, why don't you, you know, you know, it'd be really good is if you added some, think of it that way more than a, you know, and, and it's just requests are often, yeah, it's, it's Friday night, Lower East Side bar. The requests were always, um, can you play something that's not appropriate at the time? You have a vision, you're, you're in a mood and the person coming in wants their song at that time when they want it. Yes. And trust me, it's hard when I have a few, I want to hear something that I want to hear, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's just DJs do not like requests will, and it's I different when you're doing a private event because that. you're like for hire and, in those contexts, I don't mind because if I if I'm gonna play something and it'll, it'll it it resonates with the crowd in a way that I can't like that I may not know because it's their thing. Then sure. I mean, you know, even even when I'm doing the lives, people will be punching in their requests. I'm just like, nah, that's not where I'll I'm stop. going. I'll stop. I won't do it again. I've been school. Or you just like you know like I mean, there's so many things about there's like T-shirts about things people say to DJs like can you hold my jacket can you plug in my phone do you have this song no can you play it off my phone or um you know can you play this I just played it can you play it again like that's no way am I playing a song I never even play a song twice this, I'm, or I'm this, gonna play the best song of the night right at the beginning of the night ever it's like there's a whole like logic and you know it's like the feeling of your jukebox like you're doing something there it's not just we often highlight we often highlight clips for social media and we talked about so many interesting things but i I gotta tell you that one question might get highlighted because (laughs) you're like let me tell you why (laughs) okay um you know right now i don't d sometimes we feel a little you know remiss and not talking about what's happening in the world Right. Um, I'm sick of it. I don't want to. But yeah, okay, go ahead. Yeah, I think I think though I, I had a specific question for you. You know, there's there's so much 
going on in terms of the world and the history of violence against black, brown, trans people in response to, you know, a bunch of devastating killings. Um, a lot of, you know, it's Pride Month, uh, Supreme Court ruling a couple days ago. There's so much mm-hmm. going on, um, you know, and a lot of what I've been talking to my friends about or reading about as it as it relates to systemic racism is within our own community. And I won't, you know, go into who or what, but it just happened this week where this is so silly. Someone, I sent someone a, what are those things called? Memojis on the phone that look like you? I had yeah. just created, you know. Bit they, oh, whatever. And they were like, can you make yourself lighter? Ugh. And so I'll just put that to the side. This Honestly, this was two days ago. So my question is, you know, racism has existed within our own community um, on different levels for many, many years. Do you think the conversation that's happening now will change based on, you know, folks like me, folks like you, other people questioning? um, And will those conversations be addressed with clarity and honesty? No, I mean, racism, (laughs) it's not, it's not going to be, it's not going to end in a day. And um, I think there's a couple of things that I want to be clear about. Colorism is not the same thing as what's happening in the BLL movement. movement. Fighting for black liberation has nothing to do with color. I mean, it's, I, I guess what's happening in the South Asian community is a reckoning and that reckoning needs to happen. But highlighting colorism is still centering your own self mm-hmm. and if you want to center if you want if you want to be you know if you want to help or work in the black lives matter movement then you just have to just it's really just three words black lives matter when you really think about it that way it's not indians are like colorism exists throughout the world and i you know um there's a book called how not to be a racist Mm-hmm. Um, but there's another book by the same author called Stamped, and it's a history of racism. And I think that book is actually even more interesting about how colorism arises, and it does arise in the context of of, of racism. But I think um, the community, South Asian community, is starting to talk about these things in a, a meaningful way. It's very positive to see people like getting it. It's also positive to see white people up in the streets, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's the one thing we're seeing about these, uh, these protests is that the, the diversity and sort of like, you know, ripping the bandaid off is like cops lie all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's not that this wasn't this kind of thing. I mean, when I, when I saw 12 years a slave, I was like, oh, this is just a direct line to today. This is like today. And in the complete in the movie was the white savior from Canada. You know, I don't know if you remember that. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, whatever. He got the movie made, though, so he had to get his little, like, piece. But um, I think, you know, structural racism is complicated. White supremacy is complicated. And we all have to come to it from where we are. But we also have to center black liberation. And that's where it starts. And and if you have to think about it. And the other thing that I think our community is worse, is, is, is not good about, is our classism. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is inter, this is where we talk about intersectionality, mm-hmm. you know, um, there's so much centering of whiteness as, as the center that, and what, what those things are aspirationally that I, I don't think we can un, uh, really understand. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of movements like talk to your parents about don't be a racist. And I'm just like, I, I don't know, that's not, that's still like, it, it, it borders on white brown fragility to me. A little bit. I, I think I get it. I mean, look, we've all grown up around um, extremely racist sentiments in our community. I've been around mm-hmm. it, you know. Um, but I also play black music. I'm also a DJ. It's a black and brown art. Like, you know, I want to know its context, its history. It's important to me. I'm, you know, I'm benefiting from black culture as well. I want to be responsible around it. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, we need to be better, all of us, all of us. Um, but we also need to understand that the cops are not our friends, you know, and I think that's the one, 
good thing that's coming out of this is like realizing how much freaking money cops have and how much they lie and how much they terrorize black and brown people. And I also think that if we had a better class analysis within our community, we would understand that brown people in our community also have afraid, a fraught relationship with the cops, you know, like my dad, um, like, you know, I, the TLC has terrorized cab drivers for years, you know, and that's not the same as the experience of being a black person in America, but there are larger structural oppressions that happen where there's places for understanding. There's also been other movements where there has been solidarity building across different communities that people don't understand. And this idea that defund the police and abolition just started today does a disservice to all the abolitionists that have that have been in the movement yep. for years. Like Miriam, I mean, Miriam Cabo's op-ed in the New York Times, like yes. please read it. She just nailed it. She was articulate. It was to the it's point. Beautiful. It made sense, you know, and Miriam Caba, who runs Survived and Punished, has been doing this work for years. Ruthie Gilmore has been doing this work for years. Like, this isn't coming out of thin air, you know? Yeah. This has been years of work um, for people. And I, I mean, every day it's just heart-wrenching to see yeah. the violence. I mean, you know, people are now getting actually lynched in a blatant way, and it's disgusting. I hear it's it's awful like there's been six at least six lynchings now and they're all saying it's suicide it makes no fucking sense to me it's bullshit you know um and this is serious you know and i say burn it down i'm with you sorry no listen i I appreciate you tea party is i mean you know when this country values property more than people when a movement is started by a supposed fake $20 bill and a man's life being crushed, you know, like, what does it say about this place? When this whole land, the land that we sit on is stolen and it's based on settler colonialism and, you know, looting and rioting have been the tools of the colonizer and the oppressor for years. And for them to flip it on us and be like, yo, looting and rioting, it's all garbage, you know? It's, it is. It's like, I, you know, jokes that are going around, like, if you want to see looting, go to a museum. Like, <laughs> no shit. Facts. Facts. I, I have a question, actually, for, for either one of you. Um, this moment, whatever you want to call it, that we're in, for me, feels like the first time in my 30 years that it seems as if so many other people of color seem to really be speaking out against the atrocities against black people. Mm -hmm. And to me, one of the greatest tragedies uh, that racism inflicts, that the white supremacy, the idea, the ideology, because it's not real, but the ideology of white supremacy inflicts upon everybody, but in particular people of color, is this notion that there can be like a hierarchy amongst, you know, the different groups. And mm-hmm. so, well, if you're, you know, this shade or if you come from this place, then then you can get a little bit higher on the totem pole or whatever. And so there can be this concoction of almost a competition amongst people of color when we are all subjected to some flavor of the same bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. Do you guys feel that there is an awakening happening within the South Asian community as it relates to an urgency to to speak out, to fight against what is happening? And is there a recognition that in some ways this is like the miner's canary, you know, what's happening to to black people? Everybody is, is at risk. Everybody is at risk. I don't know. That just came to me. I would hope that people would fight not because they're personally at risk, but because they should fight, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I'm not fighting because I'm scared for myself. I just, you know, I'm fighting because it's the right thing to fight for. Um, in terms of the community, I, I don't know. In some ways, we've talked the whole 
a lot about community and creating community and community's complicated. It's, 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 it's fraught in its ideals. What is communities? You know, I don't feel accepted in my community the whole way I'm queer, you know, and, and I've, I've, there's definitely places that I'm not welcome. And I've dealt with a lot of effing sexism in the music business. And I don't even like really acknowledge it in a way where, um, but I, I don't know. I mean, do you want to take that? I mean, that's, I don't know. That's, 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 it's a complicated. It is complicated. And I think to your earlier point, it's depends on where you sit in mm -hmm. that, in that hierarchy. I think maybe on some level in the U S I was just in Bombay. I don't know, six months ago there, I had a few conversations that were, that came to me as classist and I was a little surprised. And so I think that, you know, depending on where you sit, actually, whether you're there or here, it's a different conversation and it's a different type of um, movement. But I do think there's an awareness that there is something that needs to be discussed. Now, what that is and how far we go with that, I'm, I'm curious to see. You know, it's 8.02 and I have to tell you that this happens every time. Oh, and, and, and I, there's two, there's, first of all, there's a song. I don't mean to completely switch, but there is a song that reminds me of every freaking time I went to Basin Bhangra. And I want to play a couple minutes, couple seconds of it for you. Can I do that? Of course. It's your show. Okay, ready? Um, anyway, as I'm pulling it up, Dee, is there anything else? Okay. Well, I, I, I'm interested in knowing. Uh, oh, there's a song. Go ahead. Holy I mean, I'm ready to turn up. It's like. That is, to me, the happy song. And bring me, it brings me right back. And I just wanted to say that. And I, the guy who sang that song, unfortunately, he died really young. The vocalist, Sony Pablo, he died in Toronto. And the producer of that track is DJ Sand. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, that's 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 a that's a basic bugger classic for sure. Yeah. You know, I uh, rounding out. I just wanna I wanna ask you what having you know gone through so much, shattered ceilings, broke got, broken all sorts of milestones. Twenty years of basement bungra. You know, now you're on to podcasting. You went graduated from school last year. What is next for you, both personally and creatively? <laughs> Oh, what are you, my mom? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm just trying to survive this pandemic. Um, a lot of gigs that were were kiboshed. Um, so this Sunday Lives thing has been sort of grounding in many ways, and I've been reconnecting with people and expanding audiences. I'm going to plug the new Padma Lakshmi's new show, which is coming out um, this week. Uh, and who listen to this June 18th it's dropping and uh we've been friends for many years and uh she's been to basement many times and it was really great to see her have an idea and just push and push and get it done in the way she wants and uh you know she roped me into a little bit of it which I'm <laughs> I always go kicking and screaming in front of a camera but she's like you know and so I'm in one 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 segment of an episode and with some, with my mates, did the opening title credits music. So that's the that's the latest thing. I don't know what's next. I'm exploring. Still a hustle. <laughs> you know what? I I have a question, if I may. What gives you hope, and what are you looking forward to most when this quarantine life is behind us? I want to hug my mom. I just miss hugging my mom. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know, like this quarantine, I'm really, really fortunate to have the quarantine life that I have, mm -hmm. you know, like a, a lot of things, like I have a great partner. We have a really great living situation. Um, I'm looking forward to feeling like I can go back to my studio on the regular. I'm not going there because, feels too complicated and yeah. Uh, uh, yeah I mean I I'm just 
excited to, you know, meet people again. And, you know, I can't wait. I can't wait either. It's a party. It's the number one answer, by the way, when we ask the hugs. Hug your mom. Yeah. Hug somebody. (laughs) I think the first person I see will probably get it. But yeah, I can't wait to hug my family as well. My niece and nephew. Yeah. Um, It has been such an incredible pleasure talking with you this evening. Thank Um, you. Truly. uh, Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, yeah, that's about it's it. It's so relevant. <laughs> Highlight of my 2020. I'm not even kidding. Really? That Thank is going you. to be, that is going to be, you know, we're wrapping up this season soon. And I think, I think we discussed talking about all the folks that we had, but I'm pretty sure most of it's going to center around this conversation. So um, thanks for having me. Bye. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, follow us on Instagram, the underscore Bali underscore effect. And we'll see you there. Thank you. Bye. Check us out.